Well, as you know now, uh, this morning is our grad Sunday here at Valley. And as you also know, it's much different than it normally would be um, having to do this virtually. It's not ideal, but we have had to make a lot of changes recently and had to do things differently. But even in the midst of how different things are, uh, this morning I, I, I cherish the opportunity to be able to bring God's word, um, not just to our graduates or our students, but to all of us together. And, and I hope to be able to challenge us all together as a church. And I do kind of struggle every year on what to preach on on Grad Sunday because part of me thinks, well, I could just use reuse the same kind of sermon from, from year to year, just polish it off every June and uh, tweak it a little bit to, to change it. But I don't really want to do that. And, and while there are elements of, of each message from year to year that stay the same, um, this year I kind of decided to go a little bit of a different route. And, and as I was thinking about what I wanted to share, um, a passage uh, of Scripture came to mind, and it's a passage of Scripture in which Jesus prays. And it's, it's interesting, and we're going to dive into it, but to kick us off on our discussion this morning, I just want to read uh, from God's Word. And the passage that we're looking at is John 17, verses 20 through 26. So let me read this for us as we get going. John 17, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Just on a first reading of this passage, you, you can kind of start to see the power that it has. I mean, it's a, it's a prayer of Jesus. And more than that, in, in these words, we see Jesus praying for believers. We see him praying and interceding for believers, asking for, for unity, for, uh, for the church to be filled with the glory of God, with, with the love of God, with the presence of God. And there's, there's just so much that just on a surface level, we can see the power of this prayer that Jesus has. And, and what really stands out to me is that as he prays here in this moment, which uh, is leading up to his crucifixion, he has in mind not just the present circumstances, not just the present disciples, but the future believers, the future of the church. And so just on a surface level, I see these truths um, beginning uh, to, to take shape. And, and that's a great start. But the more you study scripture and the more you spend time in God's word, you understand that there's, there's so much richness and depth to passages like these. And, and so I want to dig deeper into what this prayer is about. Um, and to do that, I want to just provide a little bit of a, of a backdrop, a context. And so 
If you're unfamiliar with this passage of Scripture, in particularly, or the book of John, this, what I just read, uh, John 17, 20 to 26, comes at the end of Jesus' farewell discourse. If you're not familiar with that term, what the, what the farewell discourse is, is uh, following the Last Supper, it's the words of Jesus to his disciples before he heads to the cross. So this is taking place in that last week before the crucifixion and the resurrection on the night before all of this was to occur. All of these events were to occur. And John, um, who, who, is, who is great at narrative, takes a lot of time here as well to dig deep into the teaching. And all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, give us different pictures of what's happening during this week. But John takes a large chunk of his Gospel, four chapters, on this discourse that Jesus has where he's teaching his disciples, he's providing instruction, encouragement, and at the end of it, in chapter 17, a prayer. Immediately following this, in fact, uh, John records that they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, um, and then Jesus is arrested, and the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection take place. But what's interesting is that this is the last thing that John records Jesus talk, uh, teaching, instructing um, communicating to his disciples before the crucifixion. There, there, is, there are, isn't any other interaction that occurs between Jesus and the disciples until after the resurrection, when the disciples are, are in the upper room and Jesus appears to them and instructs them from there. So, so that puts a lot of weight on this entire discourse that Jesus has. It's his, his final words to his disciples in John's, in John's telling of the events. And we see even perhaps more importantly at the end of this is that Jesus prays. And now we know that Jesus prayed because that happens often throughout the Gospels. But this was actually kind of surprising to me and I, I was wondering how this compared to other prayers of Jesus that are recorded in the four Gospels. And this by far is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. I mean, we have several other instances where we... Um, where we just, it's mentioned that Jesus retreated and he prayed or that, that Jesus looked up towards heaven and prayed and it doesn't say what, he, what exactly he says. And there are many instances where it says what Jesus prayed. Um, but other than John 17, most of those prayers are either one or two verses long. The next longest prayer that you could argue that Jesus actually made is, is when he teaches his disciples how to pray the Lord's Prayer. But John records an entire chapter, seven, chapter 17, 26 verses in our, in our Bible as a prayer of Jesus. And to me, the placement of this discourse, the placement of this prayer, and how, how in-depth it is, and how the time that John takes to retell it, to me that screams that this is something very important, that, that John, as he's retelling the story, was inspired to, by, this, by the Spirit of God to put a huge emphasis on this prayer of Jesus. And so if, if you break it down, the prayer as a whole, all of chapter 17, first Jesus prays regarding himself. He actually, he asks God to glorify the Son, to glorify Jesus. And this, this makes sense because Jesus is about to head to the cross. And the cross, despite the pain and the suffering that comes from it, is is Jesus' greatest act of obedience to God the Father. And that obedience would be Jesus' glory. That was a huge part of it. So Jesus had this in mind. And, and we can kind of get a glimpse into what's going on in, 
in Jesus's heart and mind as this is going on. And elsewhere in Matthew 26, 38 to 39, actually one of the other prayers we see recorded, as Jesus is in the garden, which this, this instance isn't recorded in John, uh, this happens. Matthew 26, 38 to 39 says this, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus in, in these hours is about to embark on a task that required unimaginable suffering but would ultimately be the source of his glory. So this then is why it was on his heart in this moment in this prayer. And that's, and that's the first section as Jesus prays regarding what he has to do. The second part of Jesus's prayer is, and this is the longest part, is for his, his followers, his disciples that are actually with him listening in on this prayer. And the overarching theme of this part is that Jesus regarding that same glory he mentioned in the first part, would be given to his followers. So that as they face the coming dark days when Jesus is in the tomb, and, and even beyond as they face those days when Jesus has ascended into heaven and they are now uh, without him with them, Jesus is praying for unity, joy, perseverance, holiness, and glory. This all so that they may be strong in what is to come. And it's, it's, it's interesting to me to see, and it really speaks to how Jesus cares for all of those around him, that, that even as Jesus is embarking on this unimaginably hard task that will be painful and difficult, and he fully knew what was ahead, he still has in mind his disciples. He still has in mind the care of those disciples who had walked with him, even as they were struggling to understand everything he was saying. And so finally, then we arrive at the third part of Jesus' prayer, which is what I just read a few moments ago. And this prayer is for those that are still to come. He says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, referring to his present disciples and followers, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And this is an amazing statement considering where it's made. Jesus is about to be betrayed. One of his 12 followers is, is in that moment, working on betraying him. His followers are spend, about to spend three days in despair, closed in clo behind closed doors and um, fearing for their lives, not understanding what Jesus had to do and what he had said was happening. And even though he had just told them all of these things and just encouraged them and told them to take heart, at the same time, those were difficult days for them. And at this time, Sure, there were the crowds and there were, but as a whole, the followers of Jesus were a relatively small group. But yet, Jesus, with confidence, prays knowing what is to come. He knows the future of his followers. He knows how they will, will follow his commands to go and make disciples. And so he prayed for those that would come. He prayed for those in the church who have gone before us, for us, and for those that will come in the church after. This third part of Jesus' prayer is what I want to focus on, and that's what we read, and because it's about the future of the church, the future believers. And so we, here today, are, are a part of the object of his prayer. 
Therefore, we should pay special attention to see what it is that Jesus desired for. What did he desire for us as the church? What was, what was he longing for the church to be? And so if you take a step back and you look at the entirety of the prayer, all 26 verses, we can see one of the central themes being that of unity. Unity of God himself that exists within the Trinity, unity of the disciples together in the dark days, and then the unity of the future church. This passage, coupled with other passages throughout, throughout the book of John and John's later uh, pa- uh, letters as well, seem to indicate that he was writing during a time when the church was quite divided. There were divisions that abounded in the church, and so John takes care to highlight Jesus' desire for unity within the body of believers. So, I don't think that the unity discussion was localized, though, to the era of John's letters and that era of the church. Um, And to be blunt, I think unity is something that the church is in desperate need of today. This isn't to say that we stand alone in history. Obviously, it was an issue in John's day, and and if you look throughout history, it has been an issue for generations. Disunity, division. But what I am saying is that lately I've I've been disheartened and I've been discouraged by the rapidly, rapidly devolving state of unity within the church. Disunity has torn churches apart. It has torn denominations apart. It seems that the gospel, what is supposed to unite us together, has taken a back seat while other issues have taken center stage and have caused unnecessary division within the church. And honestly, I feel like I'm walking a tightrope right now because I don't want to cause any unnecessary disunity as I'm preaching this message. And so forgive me for being vague on some of these issues. But what I want to do as we go through this message today is is look at Jesus' desire for unity, what it is and what it means for us, and then take a mirror to ourselves as a church and evaluate what we're doing to build unity within the church instead of division. I think if we're honest, it's easy for us to identify what it is that causes disunity. Now, I, I, I've already said this word, this word unity a lot. And as we go, we'll come to understand a little bit more what biblical unity looks like from Jesus' prayer itself. But right off the top, I just want to provide us a few more descriptors to help us define unity, to help us understand what that word is. Words like togetherness, oneness, harmony, cooperation, like-mindedness, those words are helpful for us getting a working definition for what unity is really meant to be. So with that in mind, let's dive in to this prayer of Jesus. The first thing I want to talk about is that is a positive note, but also a challenging note, and that is that Jesus gives us the ultimate example of unity. This ultimate example of unity. And that's a positive thing, because he doesn't just leave us to figure it out, but it's also difficult, because he sets the bar as high as it could possibly go. He says in verse 21, regarding the, the unity that he desires for the church, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Jesus desires the unity of the church to mirror the unity 
that exists within God. The unity between God the Father and God the Son. This, the kind of unity that exists in this Trinitarian relationship. The kind of unity that means that we worship one God, who is of the same substance, same existence, who is God, but yet exists within three distinct persons. God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Spirit. God the Spirit is not God the Son. It, and so on. This, well, this is where, when, when we're talking about the Trinity, my head starts to spin. Honestly, we can define and put things into categories, but ultimately every example, every analogy, every definition we have of the Trinity falls short in some way because that's how amazing and wonderful and glorious the Trinity is. It is meant to be something that is unique to God and God alone. Yet Jesus is calling us to pursue that level of unity. This is, honestly, this is, this is confused me. I'm not sure if I entirely have it figured out yet, but the more I try to understand it, the more it, I, I've begun to see from others who have wrestled with this passage as well, that what Jesus isn't calling the church to become the Trinity, but rather the, the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son, are an example of what true, the truest, purest form of unity is. And through God, we can pursue the image of that unity. And what he, what, when you break it down and when you look at the Trinity, what you, what you discover about the unity is that it is not an institutional organization or even, dare I say, religious unity, rather the unity that exists within, within the Godhead of the Trinity is a personal, loving, eternal relationship. So it's not focused on the rules or regulations or theological talking points. It is based within God and his relationship together. Let me give an example of this. And, 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 and I know I just said that any example of the Trinity falls short, and this example is, is, is one of those that falls short and breaks down eventually. But as I was thinking about this, this helped me differentiate a little bit between different types of unity and what the unity is that, that we see in the Trinity that, that is to be emulated in the church. Personally, I love golfing, and so that's probably why I thought of this example. I like to get out and golf as much as I can, and over my years of golfing, I have played at two different levels. I have played in the casual, friendly, friendly matches with family, friends, and I've also played competitively on teams and in tournaments. In order to participate in the latter of those, in, in competitions and tournaments, you have to all abide by the same set of rules. And typically in, in all the tournaments I've played in, that has been the United States Golf Association, the USGA rulebook. And they revise this often and they update it. Currently there are 24 overarching USGA rules. And before you say, oh, it's 24, that's not bad. Each of those have subpoints and subpoints of subpoints. Um, it's quite complicated. Back when I was in high school, we actually had to take a test on the rule book every year before we were allowed to even step foot on the course. So the reason these rules exist is good. It, it is to, to provide fairness in competition and give us a standard for, for what we need to do. Yet they also can lead to difficult and awkward situations out on the course, especially when you get into some of those um, 
more obscure rules that happen, the more confusing rules. And even in competition, when someone is oblivious to a rule, when they don't understand the rules, or they're even trying to cheat the rules, it creates an awkward situation where, sure, the competition has remained fair, except for those that continue to try to cheat the rules, but sometimes in those situations and in those conflicts, it can, it can just suck the joy right out of the game. In a casual game of golf, most of the USGA rules are still followed because it's the spirit of the game of golf. That is what it's about. However, you don't see people pulling out the rule book and imposing every single rule on their friends and family. There is grace. There's a central guiding principle that keeps us focused on the same path, and it is very obvious when someone does not want to abide by that. <laughs> I have played golf with many people who have not abided by the, just the basic courtesies of the game. And it is obvious when they're, they're reporting lower scores, they're trying to cut, um, cut down so that they can have a better, uh, better end goal. But um, that's obvious. And it becomes clear that they're not really in it for the friendly competition or the fun. They're in it to win for some reason, even if it's dishonest. And so personally, in a friendly game of golf, that you ha there has to be a level of grace and understanding that exists because it is about the, that relational unity that exists out on the golf course. And so you won't find me out on the golf course when someone asks me, what club did you use on that hole? I won't, I won't say, well, that's actually a violation of USGA rule 10.2.8 that forbids asking for advice in the middle of a competition, so I'm going to have to add a two-stroke penalty to your score. You don't see me doing that because... Um, that rule is in place, and for good reason, in, the, in for competitions. But when you're having a friendly game, it's friendly, and there's grace in that area. And so I know this, this analogy breaks down, and there's, there's more questions than perhaps answers in the midst of it. But the reason I, I walk through this is that there's an important question as we talk about unity that flows from, from this example, and that is, with whom should we seek unity? This is important because if we improperly answer this question, we're going to run into a world of trouble seeking unity with people that don't desire unity or seeking unity with people we shouldn't seek unity with, that we shouldn't seek togetherness with. And so what I'll say simply is that I believe that within the church, the dividing line for those with whom we seek unity must be the essentials of the gospel. We cannot have unity with someone who denies the essential of the gospel in service of something else. Who, who jettisons the truths of Scripture for convenience. Or even someone who is, who is against Scripture outright. Like We cannot seek unity in those cases. And at the same time, we can't reject unity with people over issues that are not gospel-oriented. That is the areas where we must have grace. And so that's, that's what's difficult about the example of of the Trinity compared to our example today, because the Trinity is 100% unified in truth and knowledge and understanding of all things. Meanwhile, we are human and limited by our own understanding, and so we must have a guiding principle down the middle, which is the gospel. And so I'm thankful to be a part of the, of the EFCA, because we have a statement of faith that is 10 points that we, that we say are essential for us to believe. They are essential for us to be considered under the umbrella of the gospel. 
and they relate to God, Scripture, the work and person of Jesus, what the church is meant to be, the, the future of the church, the future of God's kingdom. And all of these points we agree on as a church are essential for us, and we unify around them. So the example of unity we have in, in Scripture is that of God the Father and God the Son, the, the, the Trinitarian unity, and it's God's eternal relationship there. That's their example, and that's a high bar for us to be called, called to. But it's, a, it's built around personal, loving, committed relationships to one another. That's, that's what I want to take away from that, that example. But let's keep digging deeper. And I know we've just scratched the surface, so let's, let's look at something else. And as we talk about this, I want to talk about it as our source of unity. In the example of the Trinity, we see that we can have unity because God has unity. In verse 22, Jesus builds on this, and he continues his prayer by saying, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me that they may become perfectly one. Tracing that line, of, that line of reasoning through Jesus' prayer, he starts with the glory that he has been given. And he says that, that he desires, that, that he has given that to his followers, to the future of the church, that glory that Jesus has. And then he says that it, it was given to his followers so that they may be, we may be, Perfectly united. Perfectly one. I kind of glossed over the term glory earlier. Um, and, and that's because it's, hard, it's a hard word to un- define, but it's important for us right now to, to take some time to understand what it means. We use that word a lot, glory. I, I mean, it, it appears in worship songs and it appears throughout scripture often, but it's a hard word to define when you really sit down and try to write out a definition. There are oversimplified definitions that don't really do it justice, and then there are overcomplicated definitions that, that take up books and are, really don't have time to dig into right now. And I find a helpful starting point, and, and as I was studying, I came across this quote from Paul David Tripp, and he says, The doctrine of God's glory encompasses the greatness, beauty, and perfection of all that he is. Now, I know that's a simplistic definition, but it also has a lot to unpack. But what I, what I get from this and from other attempts to define God's glory is that glory is the word we use to describe the entirety of who God is and the entirety of what he has done. That is God's glory. No wonder it's so hard to define. It's what makes God worthy of our worship, his glory. It is who he is. It is what he has done for us. But yet God, as a whole, for us as humans, is, is indefinable. We cannot comprehend all that God has done. I've heard it said that, that the most amazing thing about the fact that God knows all things is not that he knows everything in the history of human existence, but that God completely knows himself. That, that God's knowledge of himself far surpasses his knowledge of every other thing in existence because he knows all things. And so for the fact that God incompletely knows himself is, is a part of his glory. And I know this is, this is 
this is complicated, but God's glory is what makes God God. Everything that he does is worthy of worship. Everything that he is is worthy of worship. Everything about him and everything he's done is his glory. So in this passage, Jesus speaks of his own glory as a part of the Godhead and how he wants to share it with his followers. And we know that we are not God. Therefore, to share in God's glory is a special privilege that is made possible only through what Jesus did. And so, to help us understand that, let's look at some of the sources of Jesus' glory while he was here, because that will help us understand where we can be united. The things that, that especially brought Jesus' glory while he was on earth, first is the cross. The cross bought, brought Jesus' glory. Something that was meant to bring shame and guilt and suffering and pain was actually Jesus' greatest triumph and glory and victory. His suffering brought about victory, and it brought him glory. As someone who's recently started running, something I've come to understand about running is that the moments of the most agony and suffering are often followed by the moments of the greatest victory and glory. And now, obviously, this kind of glory I'm talking about is, is, is extremely small compared to the glory of God. But what you, what you learn through it is that, that glory often comes through pain and difficulty. In a much, much greater sense, Christians are called to deny ourselves and take up our cross to follow Jesus. Matthew 16, 24 says that. If we are to share in the glory of Jesus, then we have suffering in front of us. We have crosses in front of us. This is a hard mental shift for us as American Christians living in a society that is easy and convenient, convenient to be a follower of Jesus when you compare it to the entirety of Christianity. Yet, we are called to suffer because when we suffer, when it's hard, we recognize that it is our glory given to us from Jesus. And in that, we find togetherness and unity. The second thing that Jesus gets glory from in his time on earth is his perfect obedience to God. Why did Jesus do all that he did on earth, including the crucifixion and the resurrection? He did all of that because he was being obedient to the will of God. And it is through obedience even when it's difficult, even when it causes suffering, it is when we do the will of God and when he did the will of God that, that the glory of God is imparted, is given. And so as we think about that for ourselves and, and, and sharing in God's glory because of our obedience, the natural question to ask is, how do I know God's will? And that's an entire sermon right there, probably a sermon series, but... As it relates to this discussion today, I will say this. If something you feel God calling you to do is suspiciously easy, convenient, comfortable, or doesn't require you to change at all, I would guess that that is not actually God's voice. I'm not going to say that for 100% of cases, but God's will often calls us into difficult, uncomfortable, challenging situations. 
If you think God's will for your life is to stay exactly where we are, no matter where we're at in our life, then I think we have a bad understanding of what God's will is. God has called us to pick up our cross, not to sit where it's comfortable. And so it is while we are being obedient when it is hard that we can share in God's glory, and that glory brings us together through that that difficulty and through the obedience. The third thing that I want to highlight about Jesus' glory is that it comes from his special relationship with God the Father. Obviously, Jesus being God himself has a special relationship with God the Father. But in his time on earth, Jesus demonstrated a lifestyle that was dependent on his relationship with God. He prayed. He retreated from the crowds. He spent time with God. He was in constant communion with God. That's what makes the moment on the cross so painful for him when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of the depth of the relationship that he has with God. And that was for all to see. Even in this passage, in this prayer in John 17, Jesus is displaying what what his relationship with God is like in front of his disciples. And that was his glory. When people saw the example of what a true, pure relationship with God ought to look like, that was a source of glory for Jesus. So when we bear our crosses together, when we obey God together, when we pursue a deep relationship with God, we share in the glory of Jesus and we are united together around those truths. So that is the source of our unity. It is is through Jesus, through his suffering, through his obedience, through his relationship that we can join in and be unified around that together. So this, this brings me to my final point on unity, and that is the purpose of unity. What's it for? And I think there's the obvious benefit of unity, of being united and decision-making and, and having strong relationships. But the overarching purpose of unity that Jesus points out in his prayer is so that the world may know God and believe. We see the primary purpose expressed in multiple points throughout this passage in John 17. It says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me at the end of verse 21. And it says, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you, and loved them even as you loved me. That's verse 23. And what this says is that as we pursue unity as a church, it is meant to be something that is a witness to the world. It is meant to be missional. It is a testament to who God is, the great love that he has for us, and the power of the gospel. Unity is not just something that brings our church together to agree on a new ministry or or the color of the walls. Unity is meant to be a beacon to the world that demonstrates that something truly different, something divine, something holy, something glorious is available as a follower of Jesus. According to Paul, In 2 Corinthians 2.15, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The church is meant to be a pleasing aroma. We are meant to demonstrate unity, something that that is becoming very countercultural today. And in the midst of that, 
as we stand against culture and we stand united together around our relationship with Jesus, around the essentials of the gospel, if we get this right, we will see people coming to us, coming to Christ. And I know that what I've said has been taken too far in some churches in recent decades. This this so-called attractional model for church has become quite popular. But the fatal flaw of an attractional church is that they are not inviting people into the unity of the gospel as it stands in scripture. They are inviting, they are softening the edges of the gospel. They're expanding the boundary of what the gospel is or or even cutting out things that, that are exclusionary. And they're trying to get a unity with as many people as they can. Trying to to make it comfortable to be a follower of Jesus. And that takes many forms. But what that does is it creates a false sense of unity. And it creates a false gospel. Being unified, while it is meant to be a pleasing aroma to the world, is also uncomfortable. It means setting aside some of your personal rights and privileges for those around you. It means holding tightly to the truths of scripture, even when it's not popular. It doesn't give us an excuse to make, to make it look like our church life is miserable. Um, that's when we overcorrect into a stifling legalism. Being unified is truly meant to draw people into the gospel. And if we want to do that, we must first be united ourselves. If our church is one of one mind regarding the gospel and our calling to the world, look out, because that is the kind of church that sees people coming to know Jesus. That is the kind of church that is actively seeking to invite people in. Because in a world where cheap and false unity and togetherness abounds, the real and true and pure and holy unity that flows from God himself will stand out in the best way possible. So the purpose of our unity is so that the world may know who God is, what he has done, and how we can enter into a relationship with him. There's so much more in this prayer of Jesus that I want to talk about, and I wish I had more time to dive, especially into the second half of the prayer. And I also know that this hasn't been the typical grad Sunday message. But the prayer of Jesus here is also my prayer for our graduates, for our students, and for all of us together as well as a church. It's a challenge and an encouragement that Jesus has given to us through this prayer. And I, I bring this scripture up today because one of the critical issues facing the church right now is, is within the emerging generation. Statistic after statistic shows that this emerging generation is leaving the church like never before, like no generation before. And we can be alarmed by that, we can dispute the statistics, but today as we, as we recognize graduates, what we're doing is we're recognizing the importance of, of ministering to our students, teaching them the essentials of the gospel, and we can't do that if we are not first united together as a church. If we can't agree upon what we need to teach our students, if we can't agree on on what our church is first, then we can't minister to our students. So this topic of unity is so relevant to us as we 
desire for our students to develop a strong faith and step in to the church for a lifetime. But here's the thing about unity. We cannot be united if we disagree on the essential gospel. If we are taking essentials out of what the gospel is to make it palatable, that is a cheap unity. If we are discarding doctrines regarding God and scripture and salvation and our eternal destiny, then we are creating a cheap unity. At the same time, if we are adding to the message of the gospel, if we are adding to, to what it is that leads us to salvation and we are setting up unnecessary fences, we cannot have unity then either. That's unnecessarily exclusionary. We also cannot be united if we let our political agenda, left-wing or right-wing, take control in our church. We cannot be united if we only talk to the same people every week. We cannot be united if there's infighting regarding things that in the scope of eternity do not matter. We cannot be unified if we are one person on Sunday morning and another person on Monday. We can't be united if we hold on to our personal rights and freedoms that we feel like we've earned, that we feel like we deserve, but yet sacrifice a relationship with someone else because of it. We can't have unity if we're not willing to fight for it, if we're not willing to be uncomfortable, if we're not willing to hold tightly to the gospel in the process, if we're not willing to be challenged by this example that Jesus set for us, if we're not willing to take up our cross. We can have unity if we follow that example set before us and we rely on God and His glory. If we pick up our cross, we will remain obedient and we pursue our relationship with the Father. If we passionately pursue loving, sacrificial relationships with one another, the world will know that God is God. The world will know that we are different. The world will know Jesus. The world will know salvation. And that will be our glory. Church, we are at a unique moment in the history of our nation, the history of, of the global church. A pandemic is still ongoing. Racial injustices are boiling to the surface. Politicians are at each other's throats. And it seems like the world is becoming more and more divided day in and day out. That's the result of living in, in a fallen world. But now is the opportunity for us to come together and show the world what it means to be united as a body of believers. That we are willing to set aside our personal rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters. That we are willing to pick up our cross. That we are willing to endure discomfort and pain all for the sake of the gospel. Let's show the world who we are meant to be and what Jesus desired for us. Let's show the world that we are united. I want to close by just reading the, the final two verses of chapter 17. I think they're a powerful way to end our time this morning. And I want this to be a part of our prayer. So this is how Jesus' prayer ends. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, 
and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Father, let that be our prayer this morning and every morning. Amen.